0: Good morning. Uh, you, you, you might be wondering, what's that guy doing up there? That's a good question. My, my grandson uh, Jacob is three years old and uh, Debbie and I were with him recently up in uh, Boston and his mom and dad asked him to pray before the meal, something that he was very eager to do. And so he bows his head and he thanks God for mommy and for daddy and for brother and for grandma. And for that guy (laughs) so if you're wondering who's that guy well that's me Uh, I'm that guy today Pastor Tracy was scheduled to speak uh, but he is ill and uh, with camp and all of that the usual suspects were not available so I got the call the old saying never talk about religion or politics Uh, That's easily enough justified in our human experience. The reason for the advice is that these topics frequently lead to conflict and they have spoiled many Thanksgiving dinners and Fourth of July picnics, more than can be counted, and I've been at a few of those myself. But at least as regards the topic of religion, uh, the Apostle Paul doesn't seem to have gotten the message. More likely, Paul believed that some topics were just too important to avoid even if some people got very upset. We live, as you know, in a very divided time. Our nation is divided deeply over politics, over religion, in profound, in deepening ways. There's no shortage of voices out there saying that things are in danger of falling apart. People are not getting along. They're frequently very uncivil toward those who hold a difference of perspective. And for Christians, the temptation might be to just keep our mouths shut. And for some of us, that might be good advice. I was thinking if Pastor Tracy was preaching this morning, I can imagine him saying about this time that some of us need to learn to keep our mouths shut more of the time. But when it comes to the gospel, there is just too much at stake for us to remain silent. We all need, we do, to to learn to listen well and and to engage with people with tact and with a good sense of timing and with civility and, and all of that, that is important. But the gospel itself is too important, it's too good for us to be silent we must speak we must speak with gentleness and with respect and the passage that we're looking at this morning acts chapter 19 it begins and we'll look a little beyond what was read this this section begins and ends with people who are upset it illustrates how the gospel does divide people yes but it also illustrates powerfully why that should not stop us from speaking and from doing. It's because the gospel also transforms people, transforms people for the good, and it disrupts the status quo for the good. So the gospel divides, the gospel transforms, and the gospel disrupts. The gospel divides. Paul knew full well that this message would divide people. He knew that some would receive it gladly and uh, that others would reject it at times violently. He himself experienced these two responses to the message uh, repeatedly, but the negative responses did not silence him. He kept talking about Jesus. And if we ask why, it was because he knew that the gospel message is the power of God for salvation. That's why he didn't just quit. And I think that one of the main reasons that so many of us are not more active in talking uh, with others about our faith is, is that we don't like making people upset. That's understandable. We particularly don't like people thinking that we're obnoxious or that we're idiots. But Paul believed that the message that he had been given, that we have been given, was too important, and so he wouldn't shut up even if not everyone received it well. As he reminded the Corinthians when he wrote to them, we preach Christ crucified. And it's as though he's saying, yeah, I know, that's a stumbling block to the Jews. And and to the Greeks, that's foolishness. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, that message is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Sure, some people won't get it. Some people will think you're an idiot because you believe that. But others will find that this is nothing less than the wisdom, the power, the word of life. And we've already seen uh, going through the book of Acts these different reactions. Today, as Paul comes to Ephesus, we see them once again. When he arrives in Ephesus, there uh, in in verse 1 and then we're down in verse 8, when he arrives in Ephesus, according to his usual pattern, the text says that he goes first into the synagogue. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly. It says, Reasoning persuading them about the kingdom of God, but he wasn't well received. Some became stubborn and continued in unbelief. There's a real rejection. There's a real hardness of heart Uh, and you see that even further. They spoke evil of these Christians. They spoke evil of the way before the congregation and because of that opposition Paul moved to another location. The text says that he withdrew from them and he took the disciples with him, but he continued reasoning daily, now in a, apparently a lecture hall, the hall of Tyrannus. Every day he would go there, probably in the middle part of the day, to reason with people about Jesus. Now, the reasons that the gospel divides people, the reasons the the gospel provokes strong reactions, they are many, but at its core, the gospel divides us because it challenges our most deeply held beliefs and our, our presuppositions about ourselves and about the world In the case, for example, of Paul's fellow Jews, the gospel challenged their beliefs about the nature of the kingdom of God. It challenged their understanding of of their own relationship with God. It challenged their presuppositions about the coming Messiah, who he would be, and what he would do. Now, some of them were persuaded, but many of them were not, and they hardened their hearts in unbelief. The gospel is always calling each of us into into a radically new way of seeing ourselves and all of reality. It inevitably disturbs our status quo and challenges our familiar ways of seeing and thinking and behaving. Our culture, the one you and I live in, has come to a a place where we have an unprecedented understanding of the individual, of the self, the person. We are a culture that is individualistic in the extreme. The highest good is to be what? True to yourself. And in this way of thinking, the church, family, tradition, virtually all of our institutions and external authorities are viewed with suspicion and with distrust. I uh, minister on the Princeton University campus and these days on the campus students don't like the idea of a god who has the authority and the right to tell them what to do. That is oppressive. If there is a god his job should be only to affirm me and to make me feel good about myself and about my desires and about the choices that I make. I don't want to hear that I am sinful, that I am accountable to an external authority, much less to God, or that the true meaning of life is not something that I find in myself, but is something I need to learn from the one who created me. Then, Now, the gospel is always disruptive. But that's not a bad thing. That may just be the very best thing in the world. To those who are being saved, the gospel is good news. It is the wisdom and it is the power of God. And for those who embrace it, the impact of the gospel is wonderfully life-changing. It is transformative. And that is why Paul kept talking about it in spite of rejection. He continued, it says here in Ephesus, speaking, reasoning, persuading people for two years so that all the residents, verse 10 of Asia, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And and God used his perseverance and his faithfulness in spite of opposition, to bring extraordinary results and that's an encouragement to us because we may sometimes feel that what's the point? People just think this is stupid, they reject it, they don't want to hear but Paul persevered, he kept speaking and and people did respond because when people grasp the truth of the gospel, And when they embrace it and turn from whatever false gods they have been following and worshiping, their lives begin to change. And so, yes, the gospel divides, but secondly, the gospel transforms. Genuine Christian faith will have an impact on, on your life, on how a person lives, and that impact can be dramatic. In verses 11 through 20, we read that as a result of this combination of Paul's preaching and the remarkable manifestations of God's healing and saving power, we read that fear came upon them and all the name of Jesus uh, came upon them all. And the name of Jesus was extolled. Individual lives were changed dramatically. Let's think about this for a minute. The gospel transforms... Why? Well, first, because when we embrace Jesus Christ, we experience the multifaceted power of the gospel, multifaceted power. The gospel has great, for example, explanatory power. The gospel makes sense of life, and that is why Paul w- describes Luke as re. Uh, uh, Luke describes Paul as reasoning with people. He's persuading people. The gospel makes sense of life. The gospel has a content that explains the world, that explains who we are, what we were made for, how we are to live, what is our ultimate end. And when we understand that and become persuaded of it, we begin to see everything in in a new way. I can still remember when I was in sixth grade and I got my first set of prescription glasses that suddenly I could see the world with clarity. What had been fuzzy, the the, 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 board, the, the chalkboard in the classroom, what had been fuzzy was now sharp and vivid and intelligible. And, and if wearing glasses didn't make me look cool, Who cared? That wasn't important. Now I could see. The God revealed in Scripture is is more wonderful, more beautiful, more excellent, more worthy of our hope and trust than any other way of seeing the world. When we begin to see the world as God wants us to see it, we begin to understand. We begin to understand why is the world so messed up Why am I so messed up? It explains where genuine hope, where real comfort can be found. God's Word gives us a framework, a worldview that explains so much. So there's great explanatory power in the gospel, but there's also great transformational power in the gospel. And you know here in a community in Central Jersey setting with universities all around us, perhaps we, we tend to lean almost exclusively on making the case for the Christian faith as being reasonable. You don't have to check your mind at the door to be- become a Christian, and that's right, and that's important, and that's biblical. There are good reasons for the, uh, to believe that the gospel is true, but some of us can at times, I think, in our setting, fail to appreciate the transforming power of the gospel, power as we see here, power to heal, power as we see here in the text over the evil spirits. Ephesus seems to have been a hotbed of magic and spiritualism, probably around the the temple of Artemis there, and we see the, the, the extraordinary power of the gospel, you know, I remember years ago. I, I think it was one of our Stonehill ministry partners saying that here in the secular West, the question people o- often ask uh, about the gospel, about the Bible, is, "Is it true?" But in uh, developing nations, uh, the question is more likely to be, "Well, is the God of the Bible more powerful than the the spirits?" Uh, the evil spirits in my village. And in our secular, very anti supernatural setting, we need to be reminded that yes, God is powerful. He is more powerful, that God can heal, that God is more powerful than the evil spirits and the evil forces that are at work in the world, that He has so much power that He can raise the dead, He has so much power that He can change you and me." And so, when, when we see the explanatory power of the gospel and its transformational power, this is, this is what made the Christians, the early Christians unique in the, in the uh, Greco-Roman world. Uh, for example, in those times that world was devastated by epidemics. Rampant diseases that that killed many. And the pagan religions, the Greco-Roman religions, and the Greek uh, philosophers, they didn't have much help to offer people to help them make sense of suffering or of death. They didn't either offer very much motivation to people for why they should care for those who were sick or who who were dying. It was the Christians who had both a set of beliefs that helped them make sense of the world, and who had a hope in the resurrection of the dead, who had the motivation to immerse themselves in caring for the suffering. As one writer puts it, at a time when all other faiths were called into question, Christianity offered an explanation and a comfort. Even more important, Christian doctrine provided a prescription for action. When we embrace faith in Christ, we begin to experience an understanding and a power which leads to personal transformation. Personal transformation marked by, by, by what? Well, we no longer worship those gods that we now understand are false, those hopes that we know uh, make great promises but, but deliver nothing. Personal transformation marked by things uh, such as what we see here in the text of, of those who now believed, it says, came confessing and divulging their practices. A number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. A personal transformation that that leads to a change of life. The people in Ephesus who believed in Christ confessed and repented of of false worship, of sinful practices. They renounced them in dramatic fashion, and they renounced things that, that cost them something because they had found something so much better in Christ. And it's good for us to be reminded, you know, they they bring these, these things and they burn them, they renounce them. Sometimes it is necessary for each of us, for all of us, to take very decisive steps to turn away from the behaviors that we have engaged in that are dishonoring to God and to embrace changes and new commitments that, yes, they can be costly yes they can mean saying no to certain desires they can mean i'm not going to continue doing those things but but they are worth it why because christ is so much better and this personal transformation is 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 marked then by by change by growth by an embrace of a Christian way of living. The early, the, the early Christianity was called the way, a way of life. When I became a Christian, I was a sophomore in high school, and I immediately understood that, that I needed to uh, stop <laughs> a lot of my typical ways of behaving. And, of course, some changes happened quickly and were easier th- and and. Boy, God is not finished with me yet, not by, by a long shot. But, but when I trusted Christ, my whole life was changed. And I'm sure many of you could say the same. What mattered to me most changed. My behavior began to change. I mean, sometimes more external. I stopped, you know, using curse words and vulgar language. I, I became more thoughtful about, oh, uh, should I be looking at that? Should I be listening to that? Um, uh, my attitude toward my parents changed, my friendships changed, my values began to change. Attitudes towards other people, attitudes towards people of different races and ethnicities changed. My life goals and my aspirations changed and God continues to change me. Sometimes, yes, I revert to old ways and habits. I repent to them afresh and, and I need to be, we all need to be reminded of the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the gospel of God, and who He calls us to be in Jesus Christ. The gospel is so wonderful because it, it both corrects our eyesight so that we understand the world as God wants us to, and it also brings by the Holy Spirit into our connect- lives through our connection with God the power of God to change and transform us. But we also see in this text, in the in section beyond what was read, that as individuals are impacted and changed by the power of the gospel, those individuals then begin to have an impact on others. And as the numbers of Christians in any community, in any society, uh, grows, they begin to have an impact on that society and on that culture. The gospel impacts society. In Ephesus, as a result of Paul spending two years there persuading the people, uh, not everyone uh obviously received it, uh, but the numbers of those who believed began to grow. It began to have an impact on the community, and not everybody was happy about that. Perhaps you can read the rest of chapter 19 this afternoon, but what what Luke describes there is uh, that about that time there arose, he says, no little disturbance concerning the way, which I think is sort of an, an understatement. What what he goes on to describe is that there was a riot in the city of Ephesus on account of the Christians. And what was happening was that as people became Christians, they no longer venerated the pagan gods. And this threatened the business interests of the craftsmen who made and sold these uh, silver shrines uh, of... Uh, uh, to Artemis. In particular, the Christians no longer revered the goddess Artemis, who was central to the whole identity of the city of Ephesus. And so, the Christians are subverting the city's cultural heritage and identity, and they're having a negative economic impact on those who made their living from that heritage. Personal gospel transformation will lead to societal impact. Because Christians, we have different values. We have different convictions. We don't worship the same gods. We don't take our cues from the culture but from the Word of God. I don't believe, I don't see an indication in Scripture that the early Christians set out to change the culture. That wasn't their focus. At the end of the first century, there were probably fewer than 10,000 Christians in the whole world. They weren't culture warriors, but they were people who had heard a message, who had met a Savior, who transformed their lives, and they were changed. And as their values and as their behavior changed, there were things that didn't matter to them in the same way, and new things that did, things they stopped doing, things they started doing. Their faith was not some sort of mashup of civil religion and. Uh, patriotism and Jesus, their faith was in God alone and in Jesus as Lord. And it was inevitable that that would have an impact economically, socially, that that would bring uh, 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 an impact in the way they related to the Roman Empire. You know, just one uh, local example. Here on the, the university campus, we have what are called eating clubs, and they're, 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 they're kind of like fraternities and sororities. And they line uh, Prospect Street, some of you have driven down there, and that's where everyone on campus goes to party. And it can get pretty wild, and there can be harm done uh, as uh, a result of students just consuming copious amounts of alcohol and engaging in all kinds of bad behavior. And and some of the clubs are organized so that students can join them together in groups. And for a number of years, uh, Christians on on campus were referred to by some other students as Club Killers. Why? Well, because in addition to the membership dues, the clubs also have social fees, which basically means they collect money uh, from the members to buy alcohol. And in the past, The Christians who have joined these clubs in in significant numbers, uh, it starts a chain reaction because the Christians, they don't really want to engage in underage and uh, excessive drinking and maybe they don't drink at all and so they don't want to pay the alcohol fee and they aren't interested in going to drunken and debauched parties and all of this has a transformative impact on the club and it's not a welcome impact to everybody. Those who don't like the new atmosphere in the club blame it on the Christians. Ah, they're club killers. And it's interesting because to my knowledge, uh, Christians who join these clubs, they don't do so in order to change them. The change comes because these are individuals who are guided by a different Lord, who are citizens of another kingdom, who are seeking to live according to the values and the precepts Of the kingdom of God rather than the values and the precepts of the dominion of darkness and when they do that faithfully, when you and I do that faithfully, it has an impact. In the early years of the church the numbers of Christians grew and as they grew they began to have a social impact. They didn't venerate the Roman gods, they were committed to different values and they were committed to things that the rest of the culture wasn't committed to, and this made an impact. They were committed to care for the poor and for the needy. They were opposed to the widely practiced uh, uh, infanticide and abortion. They practiced a different sexual ethic. They rejected the immorality of their culture. They elevated women. They treated others with dignity and with respect regardless, uh, regardless of their ethnicity. They loved one another. They forgave one another, and they weren't perfect any more than you or I, but as they embraced the sincere faith in Christ, as they began to live in glad obedience to His commands, it made an impact on their community and their culture. Not always welcome. In Ephesus, it caused a riot. But not because the Christians were trying to stir up trouble. You read the text... The town clerk seems to think it was the protesters who were out of order. They weren't troublemakers, but they were people with a different allegiance and a different hope and guided by convictions that did not come from the culture, but from the Word of God. And so they were people of insight and understanding and courage and compassion And so should we be. The message of the gospel, yes, it will divide people. To some aroma of life, to some a stench of death, but that's not a reason to stop speaking. Is the power of God for salvation? Are you convinced this morning that the gospel is too important for you to be silent? The message of the gospel will transform people powerfully, dramatically. God is at work. How is God changing you? How has God changed you? How do you think God may still yet want to change you? Individuals who are transformed by the gospel will begin to have an impact on those around them. Not always welcome, but always for the good of others and for the glory of God. How might God work in our communities if we devote ourselves in fresh ways to following Christ? May it be true of us as of them that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Amen.